Okay. It's great to be with you this morning. I hope you're all doing well. My name's Daniel, one of the team here. And um, uh, we're going to be opening up the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible with you, um, can you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, which is in the New Testament towards the end. Um, It's about, I guess, a tenth of the way to the back. And then you'll kind of figure out somewhere. If you got to Matthew, Acts, you're around about the right place. You'll you'll figure it out. Um, And we are going to be launching into a series that is going to take us all the way through till the plan is April the 7th next year. So we're going to be spending the the next six months in the book of Ephesians. And we are going to be plodding through this book, studying what is a hugely powerful letter. And uh, I want to just give us three reasons why we are doing this. Because we are going to be looking methodically. We're going to be studying the words, looking at what Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus for three reasons. Firstly, this letter was written to a church in a very similar context to us. This is written to a, a church in the middle of Ephesus, which in its day had a kind of cultural significance and impact similar to that as London. It was probably the, most, the second most influential city after Rome in the Roman Empire when Paul came along. It was a highly contested culture. It was an intense city to live in. There were a lot of cultural forces at play, very similar to London. So as we read this book, we shouldn't be thinking, hey, this is a culture that's 2,000 years removed from us. This is written to a group of believers, followers of Christ, who are living in the middle of a city, trying to work out what it means to be a, a follower of Christ when the culture is not that thrilled that you exist. <laughs> so that's the first thing. The second thing is this. This is, this is a letter written to a church that is very young, just like us. This was written probably about four years into the life of the church. Paul planted the church, he went and carried on travelling around, and after about four years of preaching, ministering, on mission, he wrote back to the church. And I think the scenario went something like this, because in any church plant, there is a season of excitement, isn't there? There is like an adrenaline rush, it's amazing. A lot of people who start a new church, they, we just like new stuff anyway, so just the fact that it's new is exciting. So there is that initial element of like, this is so cool, we get to do a new thing. And then when the adrenaline starts to wear down and you realise actually this is hard work and there's rotors to be done and there's relationships to be worked out, all of this starts, stuff starts to happen. What happens is we just suddenly realise that we're left with God and a very ordinary group of people looking at each other trying to figure out how do we do church in this context. That is going to happen to us. And this is Paul writing, really, a manifesto of what it looks like after the adrenaline has worn off, after the excitement has gone. Hey, this is a brand new thing. How do we live as followers of Christ in the middle of a very contested city? And he writes us this incredible letter, which is the third reason why we're going to be studying this, so, this letter. I reckon, pound for pound, this letter is the, the, the theologically strongest puncher of all of the books. There is not a more theologically strong book than this letter. Do not be worried or fearful that we are going to spend six months talking about the same thing. And you're like, yeah, 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 we heard that three weeks ago. Can we just get to a different letter? Don't think like we're just going to repeat ourselves because this letter is packed 
full of theology and application and ethics and spiritual warfare, how to deal with anger and lust and marriage and dealing with your boss at work and what does predestination mean and God's love and human depravity and what it means to be caught up into the heavenly spiritual realms. You are not going to be bored. This is an amazing letter. Every single verse seems to come at this huge reality again and again and again. So every week we're going to be unpacking new realities that I pray will just blow our minds and change our lives. Amen. Amen. And that we at the end of this as Trinity Church London may be left as radical followers of Christ in the city of London. And that we would be left chiseled out, found in Christ as we embed ourselves in our daily lives. So this is my request of you, that if you're part of this church, every time we come on a Sunday, you don't come ready just to get a nice emotional top up on a Sunday morning because the TV's not that good. And you'll get back to watch the good TV in the afternoon. But when we come and we gather around this letter written to this church in the middle of Ephesus, we are reading a manifesto for what our life is going to look like when we enter Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. That we are finding out what is God's will for my life as a follower of Christ during the week. And this is like the moment where we get coached by Paul. That we get, it's like the half-time talk. We get gathered in by Paul and he tells us, this is what it looks like for this next half to live as followers of Christ. This is what this week is going to look like for us. This is our gameplay. This is our plan. This is what we're going to put in place. This is the strategy. This is who you are. So now go live it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Can, can we do that? Good. So this is going to be a bit of an introduction. So we're only going to do two verses today. And I want to read you the two verses and give a little bit of a history as to why and where Paul got to in this moment. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is not just, by the way, a greeting. There is theology even packed in to the introduction. You might write letters and it's just dear so-and-so. Paul has to put theology in there because he's so concerned with the mission of God. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or I could say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in London and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you, Trinity Church London, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a little bit of history as to how we got to this point. Ephesus is, is um, one of the most ancient cities that we have. And even by the time that Paul came along, it was an ancient city. Some of the first archaeological finds we have of the 10th century BC. It's an old city right on the coast of what is now Turkey, just south of Izmir. Um, the remains are still there and um, probably not very like honourably of the British. We have some of the remains in the British Museum at the moment. We should probably give that back, but that's a whole other story. Um, the remains are still there to see. There's still a huge um, tourist kind of gathering point to see this ancient city and it was always an influential city and from the earliest days um, it was known particularly for the worship of the goddess Artemis and if you've ever seen a picture of the goddess Artemis she, she apparently came down from heaven but she, she was not the most heavenly of beings. She was quite a short squat lady, a multi-breasted lady um, which was not the most attractive thing and <laughs> It's random, I know, but she's the goddess of fertility. 
Um, she's not the pre- you can Google it. She's not the prettiest of goddesses, but she was not a cult in the corner. This was a massive, major religion, and there were occult practices grew up around the temple. There were uh, whole markets and trades that grew up around the temple. Um, you can imagine that a lot of the practices and worship of the goddess Artemis. Um, these are not pure practices. There is debauchery. There was all sorts of sin that happened in the name of Artemis. But her fame was huge throughout uh, Asia. And it was known for its commerce. It was known for its culture. It produced some, even now, philosophers and artists who are still studied in our universities today. It was a major cultural influencer in the region. And it became even more so when Roman rule came. So when Roman rule came in the early BCs, um, you've got to think Dubai. So in 1980s, 1990s, where the government kind of grasped the city and said, we've got a vision for this city, and they ploughed all of their finance and resources into the city. Suddenly, Dubai just shot in, in, its, in its influence. The same thing happened with Ephesus. When the Roman rule took over, and they had suddenly a vision for the city and the finance to back this vision, suddenly Ephesus exploded in growth. So it became one of the, I think, probably the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Second in influence, it grew. They, they built this 25,000-seater theatre for the centre of all the culture and everything that was going to be produced from this place. There was a library that was world-famous, um, the Library of Celsus. Uh, the emperor stored all of his wealth in the Temple of Artemis because he viewed it as such a safe place to, view, to, to keep all of his wealth. It was a major cultural force across Asia. And so the Roman Empire declared it the capital of the Asian region of its empire. It was massive, just like London today. You don't have to work too hard to kind of figure out and join the dots. What happened in Ephesus had repercussions in the provinces around it. And what happened in Ephesus was talked about in the provinces and the towns and the villages around the city, just like London today. And they were not expecting this young man called Paul and his friends to walk in with the message that he did. They were, hap- they were going along happily. The, the, the worship to Artemis was happening happily. Market trade, commerce, all of these things were happening happily. And then there was this growing rumour of a Jewish rabbi who'd grown up as a carpenter with no formal qualifications as a rabbi, who had declared himself at God, who had done wonders in spiritual power, who had been crucified. And there was this rumour going out that on the third day, on a Sunday morning, he had ri- risen, sat up from the dead, got out of the tomb and had walked out of that alive and was still meeting people as a living God and this rumour was spreading around the empire and word had got to Ephesus and quietly quietly these rumours were spreading about a man who had been raised from the dead and most people poo-pooed this but there was a growing number of spiritual seekers who were saying we want to know more about this Jesus and in walks this man called Paul who used to be known as Saul who was a, who was a, who was a zealous Jew who wanted to destroy the church and the, 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 these rumours about this man Jesus until he met Jesus himself. And he came across Jesus. He literally had his Damascus Road, like a proper literal. It was his Damascus Road moment where we get our Damascus Road moment. He met Jesus. He was converted. It was such a shock to his system. He was blind for three days. He didn't eat for three days. He had to have a believer pray for him. He was healed of his blindness. And he went from that place, got up, ate some food, got baptised and then went to tell the nearest church about what had happened to him and give witness to the fact that Jesus, yes, I believe you now, he is alive. 
And he went from being a hater of the church to a starter of new churches. You've got to think Richard Dawkins changing his mind about Jesus today and becoming like the new Billy Graham of our generation. This is Paul right now. Sudden revolution and he starts telling people about Jesus. And so he walks in with two friends, Aquila and Priscilla, to Ephesus with the desire to ratify these rumours. Say, actually, these rumours of this Jesus, who you think is just a rumour, is actually true. I've met this living man who is still alive today, forgiving sin and washing away shame and giving purpose and meaning. And so he comes in with this desire and he starts to find a group of spiritual seekers who are following Christ right now. But you've got to remember, this is early days. They don't have much teaching. So he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, we don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. So he says, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. He lays his hands on these 12 disciples of Jesus and they are baptised, soaked in the presence of God. And they start to speak in a spiritual language and they prophesy the mighty glories of God. And then he goes on the next Saturday to the local synagogue and he asks for a bit of time to explain that actually the Messiah that they're all hoping for from the Hebrew scriptures has actually come. Unfortunately, we crucified him, but the good news is he came back to life again and he is still willing to forgive us for that and to give mercy to our souls. Yet this didn't go down too well in the synagogue. And so what he did is he hired a lecture hall in town and he began to teach every single day for anyone who would come and listen to him. He would begin to teach from the Hebrew scriptures and from his experience and from what God was doing around the Mediterranean basin that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he gained this growing hearing. And During the week, he was also operating in massive spiritual power. So we're told even in one point that someone brought a hanky to him. So he said, Paul, we know you can't get there, but our friend needs healing. Will you just pray for this hanky and we'll take the hanky and we'll touch that person with the hanky and we believe that they will be healed. And he was operating such spiritual power that he literally just prayed for this hanky and then they left it with them and they carried it and they touched this person and they were made well. So this was a man who was operating with massive spiritual power. And we're told in Acts that the whole area of Asia heard about Jesus because of this ministry in Ephesus. What happens in Ephesus gets spread across all of Asia. Massive influence. And then this moment in Acts 19.23 that I love happens. And Luke writes this and he says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way no little disturbance and you need to know this when the gospel gets a hold of a city there is no little disturbance called what happened for them is that the the worship of artemis all these trays had grown up around it and there there were all these craftsmen silversmiths who are making statues of this multi-breasted god and this was apparently like selling like hotcakes and they were making their living out of selling these statues and yet what was happening as more and more people were changing their minds about Jesus they said actually I do believe that Jesus is God and who he says he is they began to leave their practice and their worship of Artemis they began to burn them their books uh, of magic and the trade that was surrounding the temple courts were going down and down and down. So one leader of the guild, Demetrius, he started, you can imagine, walking around asking his fellow colleagues, like, how's your business doing this month? And they're saying, it's down, it's, it's, not, it's not good. My wife's been at me, like, where's the meds? What's going on? I can't buy my, you know. And he's going around, he's finding out that actually all of the trades are taking less and less income month on month. And he starts to inquire, why are we selling less? 
and you, you, you know when a problem hits. People don't really care what happens until it hits their wallet, do they? Like, I don't really care. Politics is fine until, no, no, no. If it means I'm going to be worse off, I'm voting. I'm getting in there. That's when people really care. And suddenly, this growing anger arose because Paul wasn't just affecting the spiritual realm. It was now affecting industry and income. So people were cross. And so Demetrius gathers up this rowdy rabble and he incites a riot. And we're told this, when they heard this, that it was because of this man Paul and his preaching that their income was going down. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, who were two Christians, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And suddenly there was this huge riot. And it's hilarious because you read the account in Acts 19 and a lot of people don't even know why they're there. They just get caught up in this big, they just want to cause trouble. So like, if there's trouble, if we can be noisy, if we can break some stuff, we want to be there. And so they end up in this riot and Paul says, I want to get in there. You know, most people would think, guys, I feel like the Lord's saying, we just need to leave this place now. It's got new, new pastures for us. Paul says, no, there's a crowd of people, there's a riot. I need to tell them about Jesus. And they have to literally hold him back from entering in because they know he would probably not um, live if he enters into this riot. But through sensibility, they keep him back. And what happens is this whole thing dies down. But as this dies down, what has happened is the church has remained. And suddenly there are believers in the middle of this turbulence. Believers are formed. Because what always happens in a spiritual awakening, in all the turbulence... Because there is always good and bad press when there is a spiritual awakening. There is always good bits and bad bits that happen. But what happens is that true believers and followers of Christ are formed. And when all the turbulence dies down, what is left is a church. A glorious display of the grace of God of people who say, we have been changed by this Jesus whom we are fighting over. And so Paul says, I need to go on now to start other churches. Because he knew if I plant a church in the centre of Ephesus, this whole region will one day be affected. And so he comes back four years later and he writes this manifesto. And he knows there are two pressures on this church. The pressures that we still have today. And I touched on this when we launched. The pressure for this church were twofold. Firstly, it were to blend in entirely to the city culture around it. Because they stood out. There was Artemis and there was Jesus. And you were one or the other. There was none of, there was there were the Roman worship as well, but you, you couldn't hold both. And so if you were a Christ follower and you didn't have these statues around and you weren't going to the temple and you weren't in, engaging in the debauchery, you stood out. And there was this pressure on them continually to try and dial down their strange practices. The Romans and the Greeks called the early Christians atheists because they would ask, Where's your God? Hey, you're meeting in the Doubletree Hotel, like, but who are you singing to? Where is the God that you are singing to? Here's our God. You can see her. That's who we're worshipping. Where is your God? And they couldn't understand. Like, so they thought we were atheists. You don't have a God. You're just singing to the ceiling. You're praying to the ceiling. You are crazy. And so there was this temptation for us. Maybe just, maybe we could have a statue in the home. Maybe we could blend in. Maybe we could dial down our rhetoric. Maybe we don't have to do this. Maybe we don't have to do that. Maybe we can just modify some of our beliefs. Maybe we can, we can just become like the culture around us. And the other temptation they had was just to flee the culture. Just to run away. Just put barricades from us. And, and, and so just to become a ghetto within ourselves. If you know that sometimes, you know, if you've like been under pressure at work for being a Christian, 
the, the temptation just to keep your head down. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about church. I don't want to talk about Jesus. I don't want to stick. And so we retreat. And so Paul knows these two pressures just to blend in or to retreat. And so he writes these opening words, which basically contain the whole theme of the rest of this letter to the church. And he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So he writes firstly, and he affirms their identity as citizens of Ephesus. You are Ephesians. You are Londoners, Trinity Church. And he's... And then he says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he affirms, you are not just in Ephesus, church, you are in Christ. And so what he starts off with these two massive, massive themes in that you are in Ephesus and you are in Christ. Or for us, you are in London and you are in Christ. You are in the city, but not of the city because you are also in Christ. We have this dual citizenship, Paul says, where you are bound up as a citizen of this city. City, We are Londoners. This is our home. This is where we do our life. This is who we are. And you are also a citizen of heaven that you are in Christ. This is the culture that dictates your heart and your life and your ambitions and your goals. And we need to maintain both of these realities together if we are going to live rid- radical lives in the city. So Karl Barth, he says this. I read it last week, but it's so good. I want to read it again. He says this. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. And I love that. We are to be a sign in the city that contradicts the culture of the city, but not in an antagonistic way, in a way that holds out life and promise and light. Because we have good news. We are bearers of good news. And if we can maintain this, this in London and this in Christness, if we can do both of these at the same time, then we will be a light to this city and the nations. Let me read you one description of a church who nailed this. In the early 200s, there was a, a letter written to a disciple of Jesus called Diognetus. And it's quite a long description, but just read this description of these early Christians who embedded themselves in normal everyday life and yet embedded themselves in Christ at the same time. And just imagine if this were written about Trinity Church London. This would be my prayer. A journalist would come amongst us. He would write a report on us. they say, this is what I found. This is what happened in the early 200s. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, so they're not ghettos, nor employ um, peculiar forms of speech. There's no like weird Christian talk that develops, you know, you think only Christians understand what you're talking about. It says, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. So if you put these Christians against the wall with other people who weren't believers and had other faith, you couldn't mark out which were the believers. He says, the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of merely human doctrines, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities according to the lot which has been determined to them and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. Do you get that? So you can't mark them out from anyone except from their striking and wonderful method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. 
As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land to them is as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all and they beget and have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. You love that? So they were promiscuous with their homes, said, anyone, come and eat with us. We'd love you to come and be with us. But they were chased with their sexuality. And today, isn't it just completely the opposite? And he says, they are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and they are persecuted by all. They are unknown unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They are lacking in all things and yet they seem to abound in all. They are dishonoured and yet they are very, they're very dishonoured. In their dishonour they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay that insult with honour. They do good yet are punished as evildoers when punished. They rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. And may this be true of Trinity Church London. That you could line us up with the rest of London. You say, I can't really tell who's a Christian until I watch the way that you love and talk and behave in the middle of your life. And then I see a striking and wonderful difference. This is what it looks like to be in London and in Christ at the same time. So we need to throw our souls and our lives into both of these realities. And I want to just give three things, ways in which we, we can do this. The firstly, and I'm not going to dwell long on this, is that we, we are to love London. We're just to love being in London. Like this is our home. And before we develop a grand vision for what God is going to do in this city, we need very simply to love the people who live here. Just love it. Enjoy it. Celebrate the fact I'm in London. This is my home for this season. This is where God has called me. Therefore, I am going to get involved in everything that is around me, in work, in neighbours, in business, whatever it might be. This is where I'm going to embed my life. This is where I'm going to put my roots down. I'm not going to wait until I've made it and then move out and get a garden or whatever it might be. This is where I am going to live my life. Because Christianity is not meant to be for an hour and a half on a Sunday. Just a top up of morality. Christianity is a vision of life. And so we are going to love London firstly. And secondly, we need to be aware of the forming power that London has over us because London is not neutral you know I hope that London is shaping you into a certain type of person you know that London is shaping you even right now and I googled on the on the internet which is where you google by the way just to like make that really clear (laughs) here to teach you guys that that one's for free (laughs) ways in which you know you're a Londoner do you, want to know, do, you know, do you want to know when you know you're a Londoner? Mike knows because he's a, he's a proper Cockney Londoner. Anyway, here, here are some ways in which you know you're a Londoner. Travelling anywhere outside of the M25 is like travelling to Mordor. It will require walking, buses, tubes, trains, hovercrafts and jetpacks. Good luck. You curse the heavens because you just missed your train, even though there is another one coming in one minute's time. 
you have unfairly high standards for street performers and buskers. Amen. Going to Richmond Park is like a trip to the countryside for you. You hate anyone who walks slower than the speed of sound. Yeah? Those tourists. Okay. You know which no entry signs in tube stations to ignore for the shortcuts to the platform. You suspect strangers who are nice to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What do you want? Anyway, London shapes you. And more seriously, it has an, has an impact on who we are and shapes some of the most important realities and ambitions and goals about what we think life is all about. Because there are messages being preached to us all the time about what it means to be a valid and significant human being in this city. The problem is most of those realities are generally invisible to us. There was a, um, an, a, an unbelieving um, philosopher, David Wallace Foster, who some of you might know he's, he's now died, but um, well-known writer, an atheist from what I can tell, but he gave a, a speech, a commencement speech in America. They always have these high-profile speakers who come in. Um, and this graduating class, he gave this speech, which is now quite famous, called This Is Water. And he starts his message with this. And he says, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they began, and they happened to me, an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, what the hell is water? The point of the fish story, this is what David Wallace Foster says, is is, um, merely that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. In the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life or death importance. And he makes the point in this speech that sometimes it's the most important things in life, the, important, the most important shaping factors in who we are becoming are the factors that we just can't see because they are so ubiquitous. It's just life to us, but actually those are the things, the secular liturgies that are shaping us into a certain type of human being. And so one Christian author, James Smith, he's written this book, You Are What You Love. And he talks about this concept that we think as Christians, we are here to shape the culture, which is a good thing to do. But he says what we need to understand first is that the culture around us is actually shaping us all the time. And it is having a forming effect on our character and our goals and our ambitions. What, what we are about is being shaped, what he calls secular liturgies. So we have liturgies in church, we have singing, we have scripture reading, we have prayers, etc. And in the culture, there are liturgies that we walk through. Advertisements, TV advertisements, TV habits, work patterns, dialogue, conversations that we have that are regular habits that form what we think life is all about. And so he says we need to do this inventory on our life and ask questions of the surrounding culture of what forming power is it having over us. So let me just read this, this moment that he writes in his book. He says, look at your daily, weekly, monthly and annual routines. And I suggest like we do this. What are the things that you do that are doing something to you? What are the secular liturgies in your life? What vision of the good life is carried in those liturgies? What story is embedded in those cultural practices? What kind of person do they want you to become? To what kingdom are those rituals aimed? What does this cultural institution want you to love? And he talked about one of the most obvious ones, the shopping centre. 
the Blue Waters, the White Leaves, the Westfields, whatever it is, they are presenting to us a vision of the good life. If you want to live the good life, this is what it looks like. But you, why you feel your heart tugged the whole time as you're walking through these places, because it's presenting, this is what life is all about. And this is how you get it. And he says, when you see something like the shopping centre through a liturgical lens, you begin to see it differently. You begin to appreciate what's at stake in this ubiquitous feature of our cultural landscape that perhaps has never garnered your attention before. You just thought it was life. You begin to sense how the shopping centre is a formative space, covertly shaping our loves and longings. You begin to realise that what you want has probably been inscribed in the habits you've learned at this temple. You start to sense that this is a place where you've learned to love and you start getting worried. And then he says, good, that's where we need to begin because then we can be led to a more intentional Christian discipleship. So the first thing we need to do is understand what are the things that are shaping me. I've been aware of this this last week because as some of you know now, we've got offices as a church just the other side of the station over there by Eccleston Place. It's an amazing place, it's an amazing gift, and we've got an office with the Regents Beyond UK headquarters, so we've got this kind of incredible place we never thought we'd have this early in the life of our church. But what it means for me now is that my walk home constitutes from walking from Eccleston Place to Sloan Square through Belgravia. And if you know Belgravia, it's some of the most expensive, luxurious property in all of the UK. And so every day now, I'm walking to and from this five, ten minute walk through Belgravia, passing Bentleys, Mercedes, chauffeurs waiting outside with the engine still running so the car's warm for whoever's going to come out and jump in the car and go wherever it might be. And I am so aware that this ten minute walk back and forth is a liturgy that I've started to implement that is shaping how I view life. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not walking through the Tatchbrook estate to go home, I'm walking through Belgravia. And I'm aware that every time I do this, I'm reinforcing some vision of what life is all about. And it's shaping my heart, and it's tugging and pulling and make, making my assumptions of what is normal. It's changing, because, well, I walk through Belgravia to get back and from work now. It's a liturgy of my life that I, so do I change my walk home or do I not? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But I've got to be aware of this formative power of the mundane things that I do in my life. Does that make sense? So take an inventory of your life. What is shaping and forming you as a Christian follower of Jesus? And thirdly, we need to know that our in-Christness is stronger than our in-Londonness. That who we are in Christ has to be stronger than who we are in London. And that reality has to be a defining factor of our character and not the fact that we have thrown ourselves into the life of London. Because this is what he says. Sometimes we can miss these small little words, but he says to those who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's not just a throwaway thing for Paul. That is a theological truth that theologians talk about as the union with Christ. So oftentimes we talk about becoming a Christian as having a relationship with Jesus. I now have a relationship with Jesus, which we do. I have a relationship with Jesus. I talk to him. But when we talk about that, we can sometimes understand a relationship with Jesus a little bit like a friendship. So if you've got a friend, you know, I text them, WhatsApp them. Then you might go for coffee and you have like have an hour coffee with them, chit chat, say, right, see you on Tuesday, see you in the evening. And then you see them again and you have this relationship where you kind of see each other and you don't see each other for a while. And like with Jesus, well, I see him on a Sunday and I say, see you later, Jesus, I've got to go to work. See you at community group because Jesus turns up at community group. Sometimes I go to a prayer meeting, so I see, see you there, Jesus, I'd like to see you there. Because I've got this relationship with Jesus, like I've got a relationship with another person. 
But actually the deeper reality of being a Christian is not just I come into a relationship, two people knowing one another, but actually that I am now, find myself bound up in the person of Jesus. That I am in him, that I am clothed in who Jesus is. So Paul talks at the end of Ephesians 1, chapter 1, he says this in verse 22. He, the Father, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul says that Jesus has been set as the head over the body, which is the church. So when we come and find ourselves as followers of Christ, it's not just a relationship, but I am now bound up into the person of Jesus. He is the head and I am the body and we are utterly spiritually connected. So everything that Jesus is, I am. He represents me because I am in Christ. If you know the Old Testament and you know this moment where David and Goliath fought, if you haven't been to Sunday school, you'll probably still know this story. Basically, there's a big valley, and on one side are the Philistines, boo, they're the baddies. On the other side, there's the Israelites, hooray, they're the goodies. And there was one man in the middle, Goliath, who was challenging one other man to fight him. And whoever won this battle was the victor over the rest of the army. And there was this one young plucky guy, David, who says, I'll have a crack. I've killed bears before. I can kill this guy. So David volunteers himself and he comes down into the middle of the valley. And the duel is this. Whoever wins out of this mano a mano, toe-to-toe fight, whoever wins this fight wins the victory for the rest of the army. And if you know the story, David takes his sling. He kills David with one shot, takes... Goliath's own sword, sorry, swipes off his head, sticks it on a pole, sticks it in front of the Philistines, na 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 na, and <laughs> the Israelites have won. And you know that those Israelites are celebrating as if they fought the battle themselves. They'd spent weeks and weeks trembling, looking at their toes, trying not to catch the army, the officer's attention. And now as soon as David wins it, he represents the whole army and they are celebrating and cheering and running after the Philistine army. Why? Because David represents the whole army, all of God's people. If you ever need a lawyer, which I hope you don't in this life, but if you ever need a lawyer, they represent you, don't they? He said, I can't represent myself in court. I don't know the ins and outs. I don't know how it works. I don't have the legal expertise. So I'm hiring a lawyer to go before me and to represent my name. So if you have a good lawyer, you win. If you have a duff lawyer, you lose. And what happens is that lawyer becomes your representative. And so it is with Christians that in Jesus Christ, we have a representative before the Father. So I say, Father, I I am not worthy to come before you on my own merit. I have nothing in me. I only have sin and brokenness and dirt in my life. And you are holy and pure. So can I hold Jesus before you who has given his life for me as my representative? And as we hold Jesus Christ before the Father, he accepts Jesus as a representative. And I found myself bound up in him. So everything that Jesus lives, I live. The death that Jesus took on himself is now my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. His ascension into the heavenly places, we're going to find out in chapter 2, is my ascension. So that if you are in Christ now, you are literally sat in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father. You can look around and you think, I'm in the double tree. What do you mean I'm sat in like the right hand of the Father? That sounds way too weird. Spiritually speaking, all that Jesus is, is who you are. You have access to the Father because you, Jesus Christ represents you. 
And this reality needs to be stronger than the reality that we are in London. What does that mean for us? It means that we need to throw our souls and our minds into all of this truth. And we need to plead for God's grace. Because he, Paul prays this prayer over the church. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prayer for grace. And grace is not a wafty thing. Sometimes in church we can like, grace, grace, grace. It can, it can feel like this kind of wifty, wafty, emotional thing that comes to me. Like I've got a bit more grace today. But when Paul thinks about grace, he thinks of it in terms of crunchy theology that changes your thinking and your life. And so Paul, at the very outset of this, he says, grace to you and peace, church. And when you go to the very end of the letter to the Ephesians, what do we find? The end of chapter 6, we read this, verse 23. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So to get what he's done, he started with grace and peace to you and he's ended with grace and peace be with you. And every single time he does does this, he says grace be with you and at the end he changes and says now grace be with you. To you and then with you. To you then with you. Why? Because in Paul's mind, if you are going to get grace so that in your in Christness becomes stronger than your in Londonness, then it is going to be through the absorption and the appropriation of this theological truth into your soul. It is going to be through understanding and getting all of this truth packed into your brain so it explodes new realities in your life and that you live a radically different life to those around you. This is how you receive grace. So praying for grace is not, oh, uh, there's the Bible and I'll close it. I'm just going to pray for some grace and now I'm going to open my Bible. What it is, is I take my Bible and as I'm reading, I'm praying grace and peace to my soul but from, the, from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where my grace comes from. So it's going to be for us as we go through the next six months absorbing the very words of this letter, becoming ninjas at memorising scripture, just having little verses in our pockets written on scraps of paper so we memorise what does it mean for me to be in Christ? Because all of this letter is just unpacking this reality. What does it mean for me? What is the truth? What What is going to change my life? And it means sometimes binging on this book. We're very good at binging on box sets. Anyone good at binging on box sets? Like embarrassed faces, yeah, come on, we all are. Let's have some honest. I'm, I'm quite good at binging on, but why not let's binge on some scripture together? Just like, I'm going to read the whole letter on my commute on the train today. I'm just going to get through the whole thing. I want to get all the whole map. I just want to binge on scripture because I know it's going to change me. Because every time you binge on Netflix, it's changing your outlook on life. So it's going to become us as followers of Christ to say, this has got to be stronger than the powerful forces at play in our culture. And it means getting ourselves into the places and positions where we know we are going to be formed into Christ. So can I ask you at the outset of this series, Radical City Living, that you will give yourselves to the absorption of this letter. This is timely for us. It sets out a vision for what we can be as a church and it will change us and change the dynamics of London through us. No little disturbance because Trinity Church London was planted across London. Industries disrupted because of a spiritual awakening. Could you imagine? Like Paul. Whole industries disrupted and getting annoyed because these Christians are spreading this rumour that this rabbi from Nazareth was actually raised from the dead. 
Lord, would you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you stand with me? Thank you so much for listening. I just want to pray for us and we're going to respond. We're going to worship and we're going to break bread. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together. Let me just pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for everyone here in this place, Lord, for all of Trinity who can't be here, who are out in the back right now. Lord, for those who are joining us, who are guests, Lord, who are finding their way into this spiritual home. Lord, I pray that you would change our thinking about what life is all about because of our identity as those who are in Christ. Lord, would radical city living be sparked in us because of this study through the letter to the Ephesian church, we pray. Yeah, bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. What we're going to do now is we're going to worship together. And Richard, if you could just open up the breads, that would be great. And we're going to break bread and we're going to share wine together. And this is for us. This is a, this is a sacred liturgy. There are lots of sacred secular liturgies out there we are going to practice a moment where we come back and remind ourselves who we are in Jesus and what he has done for us so that this reality might be strong in our souls and as we do this I would I want to ask you to do something as you take bread before you take the bread for yourself would you take a good chunk of bread we want to take lots of Jesus a good chunk of bread and give it to someone else I say as you live in London live in Christ Can you do that? As you live in London, live in Christ. As a reminder that your identity in Christ is important as a Londoner.